0: Psalm 90, this is the oldest psalm in the Psalter, I'll talk about that, and it's a fascinating psalm, always fascinated me because this psalm rehearses some of the major attributes of God, so it's full of good theology. And you know, what you think of God shapes your whole worldview. For one thing, if you have a low view of God, you're automatically going to have a higher view of yourself than you ought to have and that is the sin of pride. So how we think about God has, a, has major practical ramifications. It's actually a sin and the sin of idolatry to think less of God than we should and all of us are guilty of that. But as I said, Psalm 90, it's probably the oldest psalm in the Psalter and if your Bible includes the inscriptions at the beginning of the Psalms, you're going to see this one is titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. So, this is a psalm that was written by Moses some 450 years before the time of David. Now obviously the way the psalms are ordered in our Bibles is not chronological, but the psalms are actually organized in five books and Psalm 90 is the first psalm in book four. It's the only psalm in the Psalter that is attributed to Moses and as the inscription suggests, it is in the form of a prayer. It's a prayer for grace and mercy. And now we're mainly going to focus on one verse in this psalm this morning, verse 8. But before we get there, I want to sort of cover the psalm as a whole so that you have a better idea of the context. And notice how Moses frames his prayer by reciting back to God a list of some of the divine attributes. He speaks of the. Eternality of God in verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He alludes to the sovereignty of God in verse 4. He mentions the wrath of God in verse 7. He refers to the omniscience of God in verse 8. And then he returns to the wrath of God in verses 9 and 11. And that part of Moses' prayer, all of it, is worship and confession. And notice, that his emphasis, if you if you paid attention to that list of divine attributes, the emphasis is on the fearsome attributes of God, culminating with an overwhelming sense of God's wrath. But then in verse 12, he starts making petitions and in verse 13, he prays for compassion. He turns his attention now to the merciful attributes of God. He specifically mentions God's mercy in verse 14, God's glory in verse 16, God's beauty in verse 17, and woven into that abbreviated survey of divine attributes is a series of contrasts. For everything that is true about God, and this is Moses' point, everything you could say that is true about God, the opposite is true about humanity. Whatever God is, we are not. God is eternal, verse 2, we're made of dust, verse 3. He's from everlasting to everlasting, verse 2, our lives are soon gone and we fly away, verse 10. A thousand years are like one day to God, verse 4, but 80 years is about the most time any of us can expect to live, except for Leonard, he's 94. (laughs) Way to go, Leonard. God is glorious and beautiful, verses 16 and 17, we are sinful, verse 8. A whole millennium passes by like a watch in the night in God's estimation, verse 4, but our short lives seem full of labor and sorrow, verse 10. So the contrast is between the eternality and glory of God versus the frailty and the misery of human existence. Now you might think that's a morbid or depressing theme, but it isn't. There is a note of triumph that runs through this prayer. It begins and ends with a celebration of what God means to His people, and that's what it's all about. Despite our, the frailty and frustration of human existence, God means so much to His people it lifts us up out of what would otherwise be hopeless despair. And that's why Moses has so much to say about God's attributes. This is an anthem about God's glory and goodness, and so he sets the truth about God against the stark backdrop of human misery just so that we can see the wonder of God's mercy and blessing even better. And of course, there is a historical setting for this psalm. Remember that after Moses and the Israelites left Egypt, they wandered for 40 years in the the wilderness because of their own sin and unbelief. It was a judgment against them. More than a million Israelites left Egypt at the Exodus, and Exodus 12, 37 indicates that there were 600,000 men of fighting age. So if you do the math on that, there would have been at least probably close to as many adult women as men, so conservatively there were at least a million, perhaps as many as two million, but out of that mass of people there were only two who were adults when they left Egypt that made it into the Promised Land. Joshua and Caleb were the only two, even Moses never got to enter Canaan. All of them, all the rest of those more than a million people were wanderers and vagabonds for 40 years until that whole generation died off. And the reason was that they had provoked God to displeasure by constantly complaining and rebelling and falling into the grossest kinds of sins and idolatry and whatnot. In fact, Numbers 13 describes how when it was time to enter the Promised Land, they sent out scouts ahead to check it out and all but two of them came back with an evil report, frightened, timid, saying, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. That's Numbers thirteen thirty-one. In fact, put a marker here in Psalm 90 and turn back to Numbers for a minute. Let's go to Numbers 14 and I'll show you the context for this psalm. Numbers 14, so the scouts come back and all except Joshua and Caleb give a negative, discouraging report. They claim the land is filled with giants and they said the Israelites are are like grasshoppers next to them. In other words, they came back and called God a liar. Numbers 14, verse 2 says, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or... Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why did the Lord bring us here to the wilderness, they're asking? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? That's the pull. They want to go back to Egypt. And verse 4 says they even decided to choose a new leader and they were preparing to go back to Egypt. How foolish, but how typical of human sinfulness. Verses 5 through 9 describe how Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb pleaded with the people not to rebel against God. Verse 9, but the Lord is with us, do not fear them. But verse 10, the people were about to stone Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, stone these guys to death because they disagreed with popular opinion when suddenly it says, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So the visible manifestation of God's glory, this is the Shekinah glory, we call it, appeared in the tabernacle and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of the signs that I've done among them? And the Lord threatened to wipe out that entire nation and start over with Moses, verse 12, I'll strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses, with a shepherd's heart, pleads with God and begs for forgiveness on behalf of the people, verse 19, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now, and it's true that from the time they left Egypt until here, it was a constant cycle of disobedience, complaint, rebellion, and then God would forgive them. And He was gracious. He forgave them. Verse 20, that's a vital point. These were redeemed people, but as Hebrews 12 verse 6 says, the Lord disciplines the one whom He loves and He chastises every son whom He receives. So as a consequence of their unbelief and rebellion, God forbid them to enter the Promised Land. He condemned them to 38 more years of wandering in the wilderness until that entire generation died off. Look down at verse 28, we're still in Numbers 14, verse 28, as I live, declares the Lord, what you've said in my hearing I will do to you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. So that's how one whole generation of Israel were condemned to the wilderness. They said, it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness, and the Lord says, as you wish. And they're kept out of the promised land. So... He told them this, this was a prophecy that came to the old nation through Moses. From that point on, they knew they would live the rest of their lives suffering the consequences of their sin. A whole generation except for two men had their bodies scattered all over the wilderness. This was one of the bleakest times in the history of Israel. Scripture continually points back to the sin of that generation as a negative example. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about when it says, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened unto them as an example but they were written down for our instruction. By the way, it wasn't long after that incident that Moses lost his temper in front of the Israelite nation and God forbid even Moses from entering the Promised Land. You can read about that in Numbers 20. In fact, Numbers 20, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So now Moses is excluded as well with Aaron. It's just going to be Joshua and Caleb. Now, go back to uh, Psalm 90. Go back to Psalm 90. That's the context for this passage, Moses and his entire generation now know that they will never enter the promised land in this earthly life. They had left Egypt in search of a land filled with milk and honey. Their hearts were set on it, but now Canaan will never be their dwelling place. They are condemned to live in tents in the wilderness until they die. And and that's a stark wilderness, by the way, if you've ever seen the geography of that part of the world. There's not much there. And by the time he writes Psalm 90, Moses has come to grips with the fact that he's never going to enter Canaan. But he realizes that it's okay. He already has even better a dwelling place that s- surpasses any earthly land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 1: Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, even back in Egypt, when the Israelites were condemned to the worst kind of slavery, God was their refuge and during those long years in the wilderness, God was the one in whom they lived and moved and had their being. God was their fortress and their strong tower. He was their dwelling place in all generations. It's a profound statement Moses is making here because he could be mourning and bitter over the fact that the Lord excluded him from the actual land of Canaan, but instead he looks at the big picture and he says, you know what, I already have something better. Lord, You are my dwelling place, You've been our dwelling place in all generations. And he rehearses the eternality of God, verse 2. He's seeing this not from the time span of his own temporal life, he's seeing it from eternity's perspective. And verse 2 he says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth around the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God." And then he contrasts that with the mortality of men. Now remember, Moses is very aware of his own frailty and by this time so were the Israelites. I did the math on this and if there were a million adults at Kadesh Barnea where God condemned them to wander until everyone over 20 died... And if that entire generation died off in 38 years' time, that is an average of 72 deaths every single day. That's a lot of carcasses scattered in the wilderness and a lot of human misery. And that's what Moses says in verse 3 of our psalm, the New King James Version says, "'You turn men to destruction and say, "'Return, O children of men.'" And the the word destruction there is a Hebrew word that speaks of something that is pulverized, literally dust, which is what the ESV says. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of men. Now, God Himself himself had said to Adam in Genesis 3.19, "...by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return." And that's what Moses is referring to here, God is sovereign over life and death. We are nothing but dust when you really break it down and our bodies will eventually be broken down and we'll go back to dust. But verse 4, God dwells outside of time, time does not occur to Him, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. And in 2 Peter 3 verse 8, Peter says that works vice versa as well. Not only is a thousand years like nothing, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. It works both ways. God Himself is timeless, in other words. This is Scripture's way of saying God is not bound by time. He dwells outside of it. But Moses' point here is primarily about human mortality. He knew, of course, that some of the patriarchs had lived nearly a thousand years, it's hard to imagine living that long. In fact, it makes me shudder to think of it. But Moses says, even a thousand years, nothing to God. Notice how he sees God as utterly sovereign, eternal, almighty and according to verse 2, the one who formed the earth and the world. He is the one who turns us back into dust. So Moses realizes that human mortality and human misery are under the sovereign control of God, divine providence. God is the one who sweeps men away into the sleep of death, verses 5 and 6. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like a grass, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers. And furthermore, Moses... Recognize that God was ultimately the source and the cause of all of their distress because every evil that had come upon them was a fruit of sin and therefore it was a result of God's displeasure over sin, verse 7, for we are brought to an end by Your anger, by Your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before You, our secret sins in the light of Your presence. For all our days pass away under Your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of Your anger and Your wrath according to the fear of You?" That's a great summary of what life felt like to the Israelites in the wilderness, and by the way. That's true of life in general. Human misery and calamity and sorrow and death are all the fruits of sin. That's not to say every sorrow you endure is the direct result of some sin you have committed. We know that's not the case. But it is true in general that every human sorrow up to and including death results from the curse that came on creation because of sin. Romans 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And if it sometimes feels like our days are few and full of trouble, it's because that is the nature of this earthly life. The earth itself is cursed. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. Sigh. And in fact, in the King James Version, the second half of that verse says, we spend our years as a tale that is told. The Hebrew expression actually means literally, we finish our years like a groan. And that is true, isn't it? Life ends with a groan. The end of life is like an extended sigh of pain. Life doesn't necessarily get more pleasant as you get older. I'm thinking about this because this week I'm going to turn 66, so I'm joining the geriatric group, Leonard. <laughs> You'll have to coach me on how to get through this. But life doesn't get more pleasant the older you And I'm realizing this more and more, the, the pains multiply, difficulty sleeping, at the end you die and even if you're fortunate to live long enough to die of old age... The end of your life is going to be like a drawn out groan of agony. And meanwhile, this life, this sounds pleasant, doesn't it? It's true. I'm not going to water it down for you. I know you want that, but I'm not going to make it sound better than it is. This life is filled with moaning and affliction, and all of nature groans," Scripture says. Paul, Paul recognized that in Romans 8, and 23, life is short and full of trouble, 70, 80 years at the most. Moses himself lived to be 120, so he's got you beat, Leonard. <laughs> but after this, the, after Moses, the normal human lifespan was basically shortened, I think because God is merciful, 80 years tops yet their span is but toil and trouble, Scripture says that, I'm not making it up, 80 years of sweat and tears, but they are soon gone and we fly away. And all of that leads Moses to reflect on the reality of divine wrath against sin. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In other words, what he's saying, let me paraphrase it, no matter how much we might fear the wrath of God... His wrath against sin actually turns out to be more than equal to the worst thing we could ever imagine. Consider the biblical descriptions of hell. God's wrath is infinitely worse than anyone actually fears. But notice, because that does sound like a real downer, doesn't it? It doesn't cause Moses to despair because he knows the goodness of God as well and and that's what launches him into the petition phase of this prayer, verse 12, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Great prayer. In other words, help us to keep both the brevity of this life and the realities of eternity in proper perspective so that we can be truly wise people with our hearts and minds set on things above, not on things of this earth. And then Moses pleads with God for compassion, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on Your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with Your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So life's full of toil and stress and and, uh, frustration, but he says, help us rejoice and be glad all of our days. It's a great prayer request. And he realizes that even though he can't erase the consequences of his sin, his life is not hopeless. He's not dreading what's ahead. He's not seeing the future with a grim outlook. He knows that the mercies of God are inexhaustible and God abundantly pardons so God can restore even the years that the locust has eaten. And he prays for a special outpouring of God's blessing. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. In other words, give us blessing that's at least equal to our trouble. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And by the way, God answered that prayer. The work of Moses' hands was certainly established, right? His life's work was by no means wasted and he wasn't kept out of the promised land forever either because at the transfiguration of Christ, when our Lord revealed His glory to His closest disciples, do you remember Moses and Elijah were there talking with him? So Moses did get blessing that was more than equal to His trouble, infinitely more, because after all, God was His dwelling place and God is a better dwelling place than the land of Canaan. And that's the whole point of this psalm. We're dying creatures, our earthly comforts are few and they are only temporary. This life is going to end shortly. And even if you die of old age, it's a process of decline to get to that point. So the best you can hope for is that your life is going to end like a drawn out groan. That's going to happen. But if God is your dwelling place, then you have an eternal habitation because God Himself is eternal. Not only that, if God is your dwelling place, He can bless you even in this sin-cursed world, even over and above the consequences of your own sin. He will bless you even more than the days you've been afflicted. And certainly, the blessings of heaven are infinitely greater than all the miseries of this life combined. That's what Paul says in Romans eight eighteen. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there's a lot for the believer to look forward to, no matter how miserable this life gets. That's really a wonderful truth, isn't it? And that's the message of this psalm. All of that is introduction. Our time is more than half gone already. And what I want to do in the remainder of our time is focus on verse 8, where Moses says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The Hebrew word there implies the Lord's immediate face-to-face presence. In fact, in the King James Version, it's translated this way, thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Now, think about this. The whole, this whole psalm is about seeing things from the divine perspective. If we would just try to see things the way God sees them and, and to see God as He really is, then everything in life, including life itself, would look completely different to us. We'd have a whole different perspective. What seems like a long time to us turns out to be no time at all. And what seems important in an earthly context, even even something as massive for Moses as entering the promised land, it's ultimately of no consequence whatsoever in the perspective of eternity. What's really important is to have God as your dwelling place. You need to be redeemed. You need to know God and love Him and have Him be the place where you dwell, And on the other hand, some of the things that we think aren't really important in this life are a much bigger deal than you'd ever imagine, starting with our sin. Moses is reminding us in verse 8 that even our secret sins are fully known to God. God doesn't ignore those sins. We may think they're secret, but they don't escape His notice. On the contrary, He has set our iniquities before Him, even our secret sins in the light of His countenance, which is to say, everything you may think you do in secret, you're actually doing those things right in the face of God, right in His face. He sees them all, and that's no trivial matter. And as we've talked in previous weeks recently, that includes our thoughts. Now, I want to look closely at this idea of secret sins, and I think if you'll do a quick inventory, self-inventory, you'll probably have to acknowledge what I have to acknowledge as well, that the very worst sins we struggle with are secret sins, things that you don't want to be known by others, things you'd be ashamed to have uncovered or exposed, naturally because whatever you're most ashamed of, you want to keep secret. So, in all likelihood, your worst sins are secret ones. So, I don't know about you, but... To me, this verse 8 is a frightening verse and I think it's fitting that it comes in a context where Moses is talking about the awesome, terrifying power of God's wrath against sin because nothing is more terrifying than the thought of our secret sins in the light of God's countenance. And so, having already just sort of covered the larger context of this psalm, I want to make three observations about verse 8. This will be my outline if you'd like to take my outline down. Here are three truths that emerge from verse 8 that ought to make us terrified to sin in secret. Number one, your secret sins are not as secret as you might think. You know, you can sometimes keep your secret sins hidden from other people, but there is no way to keep a sin hidden from God. You can't put a fig leaf over it and pretend it never happened. He knows about it as soon as you do it. He sees you do it, as I said, even if it's just a sinful thought. First Chronicles 28 verse 9, the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and every thought. Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord speaks, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now of course, God sees everything we do as well. Job 34.21 says, His eyes are on the ways of a man. He sees all his steps. Jeremiah 23.24, God Himself asks, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord, Do I not fill heaven and earth? And then Psalm 139, that famous Psalm of David's, is all about the omniscience and omnipresence of God. And David's whole point there is that there is nowhere you can go that God cannot see, and nothing you can do to hide any kind of secret from Him. O Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. And the point of that is you cannot hide from God, you can't hide your sin from God either. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. There's really no such thing as a secret sin. All of our sin is known already because it is already known to God. Even the sins we try our hardest to cover up are naked and open before His eyes. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from His sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account." And not only that, but you do have to give account and Jesus says, one day all of our secret sin will be exposed, Luke 12 verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known, therefore whatever you have said in the dark, shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Those are familiar texts, right? So so why do we try to sin secretly? Why would we ever think that it's morally any different to break the law of God in secret than to do it openly in the sight of everyone? In, In a way, if you think about it, Secret sin is worse than open rebellion because the sin we do in secret is compounded with hypocrisy. This is what Jesus is talking about in that text I just read. The leaven of the Pharisees, the, the secrecy of the act becomes an impediment to true repentance because it's pretty hard to repent of something while you're trying to cover it up. So think about it, if we are ashamed to have other people know our sin... Shouldn't we be even more ashamed by the realization that God already sees and knows the deepest secrets of our hearts? Why do we do that? Isn't it because we simply don't fear God the way we should? If you think it's okay to sin because God is rich in mercy, that's the sin of presuming on His grace. That was the sin of the evil false teachers described in Jude 4 who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Jude describes them as, as damned without hope, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In other words, the idea that grace somehow grants us permission to sin is a hellish doctrine. If you think it's okay to sin because nobody sees it, if you imagine that there's no real evil in an act that nobody ever discovers, then you don't understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Or if you think God will automatically disregard your your sin or excuse it because He's merciful, then you don't have the first idea of what God thinks about sin. He hates sin. Sin cost God's Son His life. And so God is more displeased than anyone every time we sin. And in fact, have you ever realized that those who deliberately practice secret sins, the best name for them is practical atheists. The person who willfully sins in secret has atheism in his heart. If there's anything you indulge in secretly that... You wouldn't ever dream of doing in front of me a wicked word that you wouldn't use in my presence or, or something unwholesome that you wouldn't look at with me looking over your shoulder or whatever, and yet you do it knowing that God is looking at you. That's like atheism. The person who does that is showing more respect and reverence to other creatures than he is showing to God. In Paul's words again, there is no fear of God before his eyes. You couldn't behave like that if you genuinely feared God. Psalm 10 says, this is one of the characteristics of the wicked. Verse 11, Psalm 10, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. Verse 13, he said in his heart, God will not require an account. But the psalmist says, God has seen it already and he will call us to account. And again, that ought to provoke us to fear. That's the very thing Moses is writing about in the context of our psalm, Verse seven, "By your wrath we are dismayed." And, and the word there means dismayed is a little weak. It means terrified, utterly chagrined, horrified, undone." And that brings me to the second observation I want to make about this verse. Point one, secret sins are not as secret as you might think. Here's point two: secret sins are not as safe as you might think. Moses is writing this psalm, of course, as he realizes that many of his troubles are the direct consequences of his own sin, his failure to control his temper. The whole nation is suffering the just fruits of their rebellion and, of course, Moses understands that all of our earthly troubles are ultimately the fruits of our fallenness. And that's why he says in verse 7, we are consumed by your anger, we're terrified by your wrath. That is the Holman Christian Standard Bible and it captures the sense of the text pretty well. The ESV says, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. But the Hebrew words are powerful. It says basically we are annihilated by your anger, we're terrified by your fury against our sin. Moses is very conscious of the relationship between sin and suffering and he's acknowledging that God's wrath is righteous. He's not complaining that God's being unfair here. He's actually seeing his sin from the divine point of view and he's simply acknowledging his own mortality and his own sinfulness. And I want to stress again, that this doesn't mean that all calamity is direct retribution for some sin you, you're guilty of. It doesn't mean that every time something bad happens, God is punishing you for a specific sin you committed. Remember when we studied the healing of the blind man in John 9, Jesus explicitly taught John 9 verse 3 that the, that man's blindness was not a punishment for his sins or his parents' sins but it had a higher purpose that the works of God might be displayed in him. And sometimes, like in the experience of Job, calamity comes to us for good reasons, not directly related to any kind of chastisement for our sin, but to test us, to perfect us, to conform us to the image of Christ. But even with that in mind, calamity in general is the result of the curse that was brought on creation by Adam's sin. There wouldn't be any sorrow at all if there wasn't sin. Sickness and trials and the drudgery of this life, all of them are part of the curse that Adam brought on this race. And the reason we, we have so much trouble is because we are sinners. And therefore, all of our troubles, whether whether they're directly the fruit of our sin, deserved by us, or undeserved calamities that we fall into, all of it ought to remind us how much God hates sin. As much as we hate the curse of sin, God hates sin even more. Now, Moses realizes that God thinks worse of our sin than we do. Let's face that, right? Even if you hate your sin, God hates it more. If God's judgments sometimes seem harsh, it's because He is perfectly righteous and He understands better than we do the depth of evil in every sin, He sees our sins as they really are and that's exactly what He means in verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. If we could see our own sin the way God sees it, if we could really understand the blackness and monstrosity of our sins, the multitude of them, if we knew the vast measure of evil that exists in every sin... We would not be able to endure the horror of that reality. And yet somehow we imagine that a little bit of evil is okay, a little private evil is okay, it's safe for us to sin as long as no one on earth ever finds out about it. What harm could there be in something that has no victim and nobody ever knows about? But what makes sin evil in the first place is that it is rebellion against God and He does know. No sin is safe. And if you make a practice of sinning in secret, eventually your sin will betray you in public. Proverbs 13, 21, disaster pursues sinners. Isaiah 3, 11, woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And again, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. In other words, you can't keep a sin secret. You can't contain it by covering it up. You can't put a leash on it and control it. That's why the only remedy for sin is to mortify it, to put it to death completely. Spurgeon said this, he said, you may labor to conceal your vicious habit, but it will come out, you cannot help it. You keep your little pet sin at home, but mark this, when the door is ajar, the dog will be out in the street. Wrap him up in your jacket, put over him fold after fold of hypocrisy to keep him secret, and the wretch will be singing someday when you are in company. You cannot keep the evil animal still. Your sin will gad abroad, and what is more, someday you will not mind it. A man who indulges in sin privately by degrees gets his forehead as hard as brass... Spurgeon was right. Sin is inherently destructive. And the more you try to keep the lid on it, the more it will eat away at your soul. David described his attempt to cover his sin in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. He said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. Selah means, think about that. That's the very reason most of the Pharisees were damned. According to Luke 11.39, they cleansed the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they were full of greed and wickedness. They practiced hypocrisy for so long, keeping their sin inside them that their hearts and minds and consciences were utterly corrupt, completely hardened, and that is why they hated Christ. Secret sin is destructive to the soul. There's nothing safe about it it's arguably more destructive to the soul than the sins you do openly. Did you know that in virtually every case of spiritual serious spiritual failure that I've ever seen in the church, people who apostatize, people who have to be put through the process of church discipline and never do repent, almost always the failure goes back to some secret sin. Every time I've ever known someone who you know, showed a lot of spiritual potential, but then they fell into some disqualifying sin or or even abandoned the faith, just about every case I know of where we've had to exercise church discipline by excommunicating someone, and virtually every instance I've ever known where someone who once professed to love Christ fell away from the faith, the cause is traceable back to some secret sin in that person's life, hypocrisy, a double life a secret sin they practiced, thinking nobody would ever know. It's the most destructive thing you can do to your spiritual health. And in fact, if you ever disqualify yourself spiritually, it will most likely be because of secret sins. It's a good reason to mortify those sins in particular, right? If you find yourself thinking you can safely sin when nobody's looking, you desperately need to cultivate the fear of God. Secret sin is not as safe as you might think. Now I have one more point. If you're taking notes, here's a review. Point one, secret sins are not as secret as you might think. Point number two, secret sins are not as safe as you might think. Here's number three, secret sins are not as satisfying as you might think. One of the reasons people harbor secret sins is because those types of sins often promise Satisfying pleasures, people indulge in lust or fornication or pornography or whatever secret sins they do, usually because they have bought the lie that those things offer real satisfaction, deep pleasure. Some people who by all outward appearances are clean and sober actually take drugs or indulge in drunkenness privately because they imagine they can get some kind of satisfaction from it. Now, Scripture acknowledges there are certain kinds of pleasures in sin, and and those pleasures may last for a very short while, but they never do satisfy. Hebrews 11.25 says this about Moses, who was the author of our psalm, that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Pleasure of sin never lasts long, it's always fleeting. Job 20 verse 5 says, "'The exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment.'" Psalm 23 verse 32 says, "'This about the pleasures of too much wine, in the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder.'" And James chapter 5 verse 5 says to the rich, "'You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter.'" But now James says in verse 1, it's time to weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. The pleasures of sin don't last and sin cannot satisfy. That's That's the big lie of the serpent. He always promises satisfaction, he never delivers. So what can truly satisfy? Moses knew the answer to that, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Only God can make us truly glad, verse 15. Only if we make Him our dwelling place will we be assured of eternal satisfaction. Listen to David from Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8. He says, speaking to God, "'How precious is Your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of Your wings. They feast on the abundance of Your house, and You give them drink from the river of Your delights.'" And Psalm 1715, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And the psalmist means, I'll be satisfied when I bear your likeness, when I am perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. That is the only true and ultimate satisfaction. It's what we were made for, to be bearers of the glory of God. Real satisfaction is can never be found in the shadows of some secret sin. Real satisfaction is found only in the bright light of God's countenance and only for those who by faith have made the Lord their dwelling place. That is the gospel, by the way. And since we're in the Old Testament, let me read you a, the Old Testament invitation, an open invitation to all who thirst to make God your dwelling place, Isaiah 55 verse 1, Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food, spiritual food he means, every word that comes from the mouth of God. So how does a person who secretly indulges a love for sin find forgiveness and spiritual healing, still in Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7, seek the Lord while He may be found, call upon Him while He is near, let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts, let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon. Jesus said, John 6, 35, whoever comes to Me shall not hunger and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. In John 7, 37, he said, if anyone does thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then the very last chapter of Scripture has a similar invitation, Revelation twenty two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's what can satisfy. It's Christ. He's the only one who can truly satisfy. Let's pray. Lord, do teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. As David prayed in Psalm 19, cleanse us from secret faults. Give us grace and wisdom to search our own hearts, and to mortify every secret sin, every hidden thing that dishonors you, and then satisfy us with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Give us more grace than we've ever had trouble, and let the beauty of the Lord be upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, Visit at www.TheGraceLifePulpit.com Copyright by Phil Johnson, All Rights Reserved.